You are about to take part in a session from a Discipleship Bible School held at YWAM Richmond in the spring of 2022, and we are so grateful you are here. So much prayer went into every element of this course, from recruitment to content editing, and we are convinced you will leave this knowing God a little deeper. The Discipleship Bible School, or DBS, is an opportunity to survey the entirety of Scripture to discover God's redemptive plan for all of humanity. Over the course of 12 weeks, teachers explored the Bible section by section, not only to deepen students' understanding of what was written then, but reveal what we are being invited into now. If you like what you are hearing, visit ywamva.org to discover what courses we are offering, ways you can journey with our team, and other content created to help you know God and make Him known. Everything you hear was created as a step of faith by a team of YWAMers and volunteers who felt God inviting them to capture the DBS in its entirety, over 120 hours of content. If this content blesses you, consider supporting future schools and content by giving at ywamrichmond.org donate. Thank you so much for listening, and we can't wait for you to experience God today. Welcome to uh, Friday afternoon. <clears throat> the sun is shining again, so that's good. Uh, it's a delight to be with you. I'm going to do three things today. We're going to, first of all, engage in a little bit of interaction with the form of Hebrew poetry. Uh, then we're going to do... Uh, uh, the Song of Songs, uh, which is one of the wisdom books. And then uh, at the end, I am going to take you on a virtual tour of the Detroit Institute of Arts Middle Eastern Gallery and the artifacts that are in it that relate to the Bible. <clears throat> so that's, what, that's what's on the agenda for today. So we should uh, uh, finish off in great style for the end of the week. Everybody doing good? Uh, Tori, you have blossomed out in a wonderful way. I just <laughs> am amazed, actually. <laughs> uh, all right. How many, how many of you uh, took a course in English poetry at some point or else in a class, an English lit class, you had to do some poetry, that sort of thing? Uh, my impression is, um, other than um, what happens in rap, most modern people don't care that much for poetry. Um, it's more difficult to understand. Uh, it uh, has a little bit different kind of, uh, of syntax than narrative, uh, and so we tend to, to not like it as well. However, about... Uh, 20 to 30 percent of your Old Testament is poetry. Uh, a lot of poetry. Uh, some books are entirely poetry, like the book of Psalms. Uh, some books are mostly poetry, like the book of Job. And some books, like some of the prophets and, uh, uh, and a few other things, are partly poetry, partly prose. Uh, Ecclesiastes is partly poetry, partly prose. Uh, but I think it's, it, it will be helpful at least to get a, a little bit of an idea of how poetry works in Hebrew. 
So that's what we're going to be doing uh, at the beginning today. Everybody said, oh, good, I was hoping this would happen. I didn't hear any uh, real, uh, real uh, strong response there. <laughs> yeah, that's what I have to do. All right. So let's talk a little bit about, about wisdom literature and poetry, because wisdom literature, a lot of it is in poetry. Uh, some of what we've already talked about is in poetry. Uh, poetry is, is uh, language that written, is written in meter. So that means it has, it has a repetitious rhythmic quality to it. Um, so rhythm would be accented language. Uh, you probably learned when you were in school, if you had to take poetry, that when you read poetry out loud, you're not supposed to overemphasize the rhythm. You're supposed to let that happen more naturally as you read it. So instead of saying... I think that I shall never see a poem lovely as a tree. You just say, I think that I shall never see a poem lovely as a tree. You let, it, let the rhythm kind of uh, happen because of the way the poet has constructed the line. It also has meter, which are patterns of verse. Now, this might be two-line poems, which are two-line stanzas, which are called bicolons or three-line stanzas or four-line stanzas, and they have patterns of rhyme as well. Rhyme is phonetic reproduction of similar sounds. So when you say, I think that I shall never see, a poem lovely as a tree, the sea and the tree rhyme, and you can have different rhyme schemes. If you are... Um, familiar with sonnets, uh, the rhyme scheme uh, in a Petrarchan sonnet is A, B, B, A, A, B, B, A, C, D, E, C, D, E. Uh, if you're a Shakespearean sonnet, it's a little different than that, but it's all in 14 lines. <laughs> Gesundheit, you did that yesterday exactly the same time. <laughs> I think there's a... I wanted to be punctual. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you are. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, one of the problems with rhyme based on phonetics would be what? With regard to something like the Bible. Translation. You can't reproduce it in a second language, or at least it's nearly impossible. There have been some, actually, there have been some efforts to do that. There's a translation by Ronald Cox, uh, Knox, I'm sorry, Ronald Knox, which is a Roman Catholic scholar who actually tries to reproduce rhyme in English that matches rhyme in Hebrew. And he doesn't do a bad job, uh, but, but it is quite a challenge to try to do that sort of thing. Uh, you also have a lot of lyrical style, which means there's, there are a lot of expressions of deep emotive kinds of feelings in poetry. Poetry lends itself to that sort of thing. Plus, there is a lot of metaphorical language. That is language in which there are comparisons going on. Certain things are like other things. And often they are put together in ways that you wouldn't usually do it. So metaphors in poetry often are rather striking because they force you to compare two things that normally you probably wouldn't put side by side. And Hebrew poetry has all of those kinds of things in it. 
uh, as well. It's not really structured quite like English poetry, but it does have rhyme. It does have meter. Uh, it does uh, have lyrical content. It does use a lot of metaphorical language. Now, how many of you know a foreign language? I know some of you, because English is maybe your second language. Um, so some of you know a different language, uh, maybe a couple of languages. Um, um, when you change from one language to another, you're going to find that um, there is a difference in the way that language groups put words together. So in English, for instance, we tend to be a noun, verb, object kind of syntax. That is sort of our, our go-to formulation for sentences. But some languages don't start with subjects. Some uh, languages start with verbs. And Hebrew happens to be one of those. In Hebrew, the verb drives the sentence. Whereas in uh, English, the noun tends to drive the sentence. Uh, so there are differences like that. Now, most of those are taken care of by the translator. He just rearranges the order of things. Uh, uh, so if I say in English, the boy hit the ball, what is the subject? The boy. The boy. What is the object? The ball. And the word hit is the verb. You can say the same thing in Hebrew, but the spellings will differ. So the boy will be spelled differently if it's the subject than if it's the object. Okay? So you can have two sentences in Hebrew that both have this word order. The boy hit the ball, the boy hit the ball, but they can mean two different things depending on how they're spelled. Because if it's spelled differently, then the subject is the ball because it's spelled in what is called a nominative case. Even though it's the last part of the sentence, it stills the subject because it's spelled as a subject. And the boy is the object, not because it's at the beginning, but because it is spelled like the object. So you, you get this kind of sort of thing going on. I find this to be uh, somewhat challenging for language students when they take Hebrew or Greek from me. Uh, they default very easily to the English way of putting together sentences. And therefore, they often mistranslate things because they're not paying attention to those spelling variations that distinguish between subjects and objects and that sort of thing. Let me show you an ancient Hebrew text. This is the text of Isaiah from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, it is uh, on uh, animal skins, and it is obviously in a scroll. Uh, so I want you to take a look at that, and uh, I know it's kind of a long ways away from you, but I think you can maybe see it. And tell me what you see. I know you don't read ancient Hebrew, but what do you see in, in this text? Okay, that's the very first thing. I don't know if you knew that already or you could tell by the way that it's written, but it is written differently than we write. We tend to write left to right, but, but, but actually this is right to left. So this is the opposite. Hebrew works the opposite way, probably because it's a scroll and most people are right-handed. If you're right-handed, you want to be opening it this way and writing this way rather than the other way. Otherwise, uh, if, if the roll was on this side, your arm is over it as you're trying to write. It's quite awkward. 
So it's, it's, uh, that's probably one of the reasons that Hebrew is written exactly the opposite of English. It is written right to left rather than left to right. Uh, anything else you notice about that? Just, just by observation. Uh, I'm sorry, say that again, Tori. Okay, there's, there's lines, uh, line spacing, is that what you said? Yeah, you can, uh, you can actually see little, little lines here. Those are actually scored in the skin. You take a, like a straight piece, what we would call a ruler, although I don't know that they called it that, and you would take a stylus or some kind of a pointed thing and you would score a line on the skin, the vellum, and then you would use that as sort of your, your, uh, your registration for, for the lines. Okay, so good observation, yeah. Uh, anything else? Yeah, Maya? I don't know why this word left me, but uh, it looks like um, he might be just I'm thinking um, the different cutoffs. There's a pattern uh, like it's what we do in music when we're like doing rhyme blocks, um, sort of like. Okay. Are you talking about like like a line like this that doesn't go across? Yeah, that, that's because you're writing from right to left. And so you've come to the end of a section and you start a new section. Yeah. Another thing, uh, I don't know that you noticed that necessarily, but there's not a lot of space between the words. In fact, in most all ancient texts, and that's going to be true in Hebrew as well as in Greek, there's no spacing between the words. Reader has to do that, which means that sometimes you can come up with some different possibilities. And sometimes that is reflected in different translations in the English Bible because you can divide the words differently and they make sense both ways. And you have to decide based on context what you think is the proper word division. Now we do that orally. I'm talking to you and you are already mentally separating the words from each other, okay? But they're doing that visibly on a text. Uh, they're separating the words. There's no punctuation, by the way. Uh, that doesn't come along for uh, till around uh, beginning around uh, eight or nine hundred A.D. is when the Hebrews started adding punctuation, and so that changes some things because sometimes there will be words that have the same consonants but different intonations, and so you could theoretically take it to mean either one of those things because the vowel pointing is not part of the original text. Uh, vowel pointing is hundreds of years later after the text is written. So the text is basically a text of consonants. Hebrew has uh, 22 letters, but those are all consonants. 
So there are, there, there are no vowels in there other than a couple that kind of tend to be used a little bit like a vowel, but they're, they're really not vowels in the proper sense of the word. Anyway, out of that, I thought we would, uh, before we look at some things with poetry, I would do a little exercise in what I call consonantal text. So let us suppose that you are working with an English alphabet that only has consonants. So then you're going to be getting rid of what? The A, E, I, O, U, and sometimes the Y. Okay? And you're going to be reading uh, a text of Hebrew, which is just a string of letters like this, except we're going to do it in English. So we're going to do it like Hebrew is written, but we're doing it in English consonants. So it's going to look like this. How easy is that to read? Now, as you get further down the centuries, we start writing text where the words are already divided and spaces between them. That helps a good deal. So if I do that, first of all, I, if I change it to, from right to left to left to right, that helps immediately, because at least you're reading it the way you normally would read things. Okay, and then if you divide it into words, no vowels yet, but you do have the consonants. Everybody can read that, right? And then if we add vowels, in Hebrew, vowels are little dots and dashes and stuff that happen below the letters. Those are called vowel points, the things that were added later, but that's kind of the way it happens in Hebrew, sort of the way I've done it here. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But you can see that if you go back to this kind of writing, it makes the reader very much more engaged with the text because you got to do a lot. you got to do a lot just to read this stuff, okay? Uh, and that's the way virtually all ancient writing is done, uh, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, except in the New Testament, Greek reads like we read from left to right, whereas in Hebrew, it's from right to left. Okay, any questions about all of that fun stuff? All right, now, given that, let's uh, take a look at some things that have to do with poetry. There are some features of poetry that are impossible to reproduce or nearly impossible to reproduce in a second language, and that would be sounds, because the sound in one language is not equal to the sound or the phonetics of a different language. On the other hand, there are certain kinds of things within poetry that are reproducible, things like puns or rhyme or uh, onomatopoeia. How's that for a $4 word? You all familiar with onomatopoeia? The silken, sad, uncertain rustling of each purple curtain thrilled me. That's Edgar Allan Poe. You get that, the certain sad and silken rustling. Okay, he's, he's using that as sort of a um, below the radar way of, of reproducing a mood. 
okay? And you can get, uh, so some of those things are reproducible in the second language, some are not. Uh, just depends on what part you're talking about. But because Hebrew poetry emphasizes the rhyming of ideas more than just the rhyming of phonetic sounds, then uh, those elements are, in fact, translatable, and they come through in the translation. So whereas in English poetry, we tend to mostly emphasize the rhyming of sounds, in Hebrew, they mostly emphasize the rhyming of ideas. So there's an idea here, and then that idea is reproduced slightly differently, but still it's the same basic idea in the second line. So um, this is a, a feature of Hebrew poetry that we call parallelism. So there are parallel ideas as you move from one line to another. So everybody with me so far? Everybody say, this is riveting. This is riveting. You liars, you, I know this isn't riveting. <laughs> Well, you, you should take it sometime, Hannah. Yeah, yeah well, you can. You can. Uh, uh, you, uh, I, teach, I teach Hebrew online with the online university out of England, uh, the uh, U of N online university. So anybody that would be interested in learning Hebrew or Greek uh, can contact uh, the, the online university. Just Google YWAM online university and you'll find it, and they'll tell you how to do it. Um, uh, so it's, um, um, I've got, uh, you know, I've probably had, uh, I think I've had three sets of homework come in just this week in Hebrew of students that are taking Hebrew from me. So I do this kind of ongoing and you don't have to start at any particular time. You can start, I mean, it's not like you have a class where everybody's got to be there the first day. Uh, you can take it in, start anytime you want. Uh, so it, it works that way. The first text. Well, you're going to do the first roughly 10 lessons in Hebrew without engaging much in the biblical text because you're learning okay. some really basic stuff. But when you get to lesson 11, I'm going to start you in Genesis 1. Uh, I will readjust the Hebrew text to your level of understanding of the language. So you're not translating literally the Hebrew that's there you're translating something that's fairly close, but I've adjusted the grammar because you don't know what a hit pale verb is at that point, so I'm not going to have you do that. I have to change the verbs or change the spellings, uh, but you're still working with the text. When you get into roughly lesson 20, by that time you have progressed enough where I will have you working with directly the biblical text without adjustment. Um, and you'll finish out, I think, altogether Hebrew is 29 lessons for basic grammar. And then if you take advanced grammar, which I do encourage, you will translate the book of Ruth, the book of Jonah. Uh, you will have translated most of the Joseph stories in Genesis. Uh, you will translate some passages in the prophets, especially the passages that are duplicates of each other. So, for instance, there's a section in Obadiah, that is almost identical to a section in Jeremiah. Uh, I'll have you translate both of those so you can compare and see how they are almost word for word. Uh, and I do some stuff like that. You'll translate a number of Psalms. Um, so that's the sort of thing that you're doing. Yeah. 
Um, it is a lot of hard work and it does take a lot of personal initiative. So if you are a kind of person that needs somebody to sort of kick you along, stick with English. Uh, if you're a self-starter and are self-disciplined, then um, you're more than welcome. Uh, be delighted to have you. <clears throat> All right. I'm going to talk about three kinds of parallelism. Three, uh, these are the three most important kinds in Hebrew poetry. The first one is called synonymous parallelism, or sometimes called congruent parallelism. And the rhyme of this, or the parallel uh, of this, is A1, A2, A1, A2. So let me show you what I mean by that. This is from the song, which we're going to talk about in the second hour. Listen, my lover, look, here he comes. Now, what I want you to notice is that listen parallels look. Lover parallels he. So this is A1 to A2. This is A1 and this is A2. Does that make sense to you, what, what we're doing with that? Okay, that is the most common kind of parallelism in Hebrew poetry. And you find it thousands of cases in, in, the, in the Bible. Here's another one. This is from the book of Job. Can you bind the beautiful Pleiades? Can you loose the cords of Orion? So you, you, bind, loose, Pleiades, Orion, which are constellations. You can see the parallelism in those lines. Now, that really helps you to understand some things uh, uh, in interpretation sometimes, because sometimes you may not know, you, you say, okay, what does this mean in the second line? But if you look back at the first line, it's going to get you in the ballpark because they're parallel with each other. Does that make sense? So sometimes this sort of parallelism is really helpful in, in discerning what a passage means or what a text means. Second kind of parallelism is what is called antithetic parallelism. So the word antithetic, of course, uh, has to do with the idea of opposites. Uh, so here the rhyme scheme is A1, A2, minus A1, minus A2, so that the minus A1 in some way is kind of the opposite of A1 in the other line. And the minus A2 is kind of the opposite of A2 in the other line. So let me give you a couple examples. This is from Proverbs. A prudent man keeps his knowledge to himself, but the heart of a fool blurts out folly. So here you're going to see that the prudent man is going to be kind of the opposite of the heart of the fool. And here we're going to translate this with, an ad, with, with, a, with a, um, a, um, a conjunction that is uh, the opposite. It's not and, it's but, which stresses the fact that these are in contrast with each other. So uh, keeping knowledge to himself parallels blurting out folly. So they are parallel, but they're parallel in the opposite way. Okay? M many, if not, well, I'd say most of the Proverbs are written in this kind of parallelism. Not all of them, but, but the vast majority are written in this kind of parallelism. Oh, here's another one from Proverbs. A patient man has great understanding but a quick-tempered man displays folly. So you can see the parallels. You've got a patient man and a quick-tempered man. Those are parallel, but they are opposite. 
you have understanding, and then you have folly. Those are parallel, but they are opposite parallels. Okay? How are we doing so far? Got it. Got it? Okay. See? You didn't, you didn't expect this, did you? I didn't either, because I didn't know I'd have time to even talk about this. Uh, but as it turns out, the way the class has gone, uh, I have time to do some of this. Uh, so I'm glad I, I, I have. Now, there's a third kind, which is called chiasm. Um, have you talked about chiastic structures here? Well, I think I've mentioned chiasm before, but not really in this. Okay. Well, I, I do know that uh, for some reason, I'm not sure why, um, SBSs, DBSs, and BCCs seem to thrive on chiasm. They, they love this stuff. And even though uh, it's a little more complicated, they often know about it. And so uh, in any case, I didn't want to just... Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, this is the way it works. Notice the different schemes at the top. As you can see in those schemes, you're working through a series of ideas and then you're backtracking so that you end up where you started. So instead of A1, A2, you've got A, B, and then A or A, B, B, and then back to A, or A, B, C, and then back to B, and then back to A. Typically, in a chiastic structure, if there's an uneven number of parallelisms, the center becomes the focus. So that's a little different than the we usually think of things in English, because in English, we tend to put our focus on the last line. But here, the focus is on the middle of the structure, not the end of the structure. So let's take a look at a couple of examples. This is a two line. To morning is tuned my harp and my flute to the sound of wailing. So here the parallels are going to be morning and wailing. Morning would be the A, wailing would be A as well. But then you've got my harp and my flute, which are parallel, but they are both in the middle. So you can see it goes A, B, B, and back to A. Does that make sense? Now, because it's that way, because this parallels this and this parallels this, if you diagram that with lines, you would make a line this way and a line this way which would form the shape of an X. Okay? Have I lost you? The shape of the X is the Greek letter key, which is why this is called keyism. It's based on the fact that it forms this sort of X sort of shape of structure, and keyistic structures are structures that the first parallels, the last, and the middle stuff comes together. Here's, a, here's another one. This one is an ABBA type. So this is from Proverbs as well. My husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He took his purse filled with money and will not be home until full moon. So my husband is not at home parallels and will not be home until full noon. A and A. But you got the two B lines in the middle. He's gone on a long journey, took a purse filled with money. So you can see how 
this parallels this, this parallels this, and you have an A, B, B, A structure. So, translations will often not do this for you in English. Sometimes translators will rearrange things so that it reads more normally in English, and you won't know that there's a chiasm there. There are literally hundreds of little chiasms in the Psalms and the Proverbs and all kinds of parts of the Bible. And I would say the majority of those are not captured by most English translations. You only really notice them when you read it in Hebrew. Um, uh, once in a while they do, but, but often they don't. And sometimes, uh, sometimes I think they ought to reproduce that a little bit more because I think sometimes that affects the way you read something. Uh, but anyway, uh, those are the three major kinds of parallelisms. Synonymous, antithetic, and chiastic. Wouldn't this make a really good test question? <laughs> All right. If you are bored out of your gourd, raise your hand. You're not. Okay. Um, good. Then I'm going to go on. <laughs> All right. Now, let's talk about something else that happens in Hebrew poetry. This is called acrostics. What I've listed for you here, and these are actually in the way you would read them in English, beginning uh, left to right, is, are the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. These are all consonants. Those are the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, He, Wow, Zion, Het, Tet, Yod, Kaf, Lamed, and so on. Um, now, here's a line of poetry. This is from Proverbs 31. By the way, I need to correct something I said, I think, yesterday. I didn't, I, I was thinking about this, I don't know, I, I, sometimes when I'm asleep, things come up through my head and I think, you know, I didn't say that correctly. I said this poem was by Agur. It's not, it's by Lemuel. Um, so I'll correct my faux pas yesterday. Anyway, it's by Lemuel. But anyway, he says, a, a wife of nobility who can find the heart of her husband trusts in her. She brings him good and not evil. She selects wool and flax. She's like merchant ships from afar. She gets up while it's still dark. She considers a field and buys it. What you don't know in reading this is that this in Hebrew is an acrostic, which means that every line begins with the letters of the Hebrew alphabet in order. If we were to do it in English, it would be the first line begins with A, the second line with B, the third line with C, the fourth line with D, and so on. So if I put it up here in Hebrew, even though you don't read Hebrew, if you can compare the initial letters, and remember that Hebrew is reading right to left, so this is the beginning of the line reading this way, and you compare the beginning letters of the lines with the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, you'll see Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, Hey. Wow, Zion, and it goes right through. Why would you write a piece using acrostics? 
Yeah? Uh, for one thing, it's easy to memorize. Once you get through with B, you know, the next one's got to start with C. Uh, it's just, uh, it, it has this kind of regularity. And acrostics are primarily things that you see more than things that you just hear. You can hear it, but it's more apparent when you're reading it out of a text. So acrostics become more and more popular as people become more and more literate. As you move forward in the Hebrew Bible to the later kinds of text, you're going to find acrostics coming up more and more. Now, there is one acrostic that um, almost everybody knows about, and that is Psalm 119. Uh, have a look in your Bible at Psalm 119. You're going to see it's divided into stanzas. This is the longest chapter in the Bible. I think probably everybody probably knows that too. And you're going to see it's divided into how many verses in each, in each stanza? Eight. In the first stanza, you're going to see it is headed by the word Aleph. Everybody see that? In that first stanza, every one of those verses of the first eight begins with the letter Aleph. A, 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 A. When you get to the second stanza, then you have the letter Bait. Everybody see that? And every line in that stanza begins with what we would call B. Bait, 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 bait. And if you... Since there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, if you take the total number of verses and you divide them by eight, you will come up with 22 because there are 22 letters. Now, this is the only chapter in the Bible that traditionally translators will designate as an acrostic. And that's why people at least are vaguely familiar with, with this particular style because it's delineated in this one chapter. But you should know that there are many places in the Bible where acrostics are used. Some are in the Psalms, some are not in the Psalms. In fact, the one we just looked at is in Proverbs. So acrostics uh, are important. And um, now I want you to look at one more thing. I want you to look at the book of Lamentations. Tell me how many verses are in the first chapter. We need to buy you a Bible so you can look it up. <laughs> so how many verses in the first chapter? 22, right? Why? Because there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and every verse begins with the letters of the Hebrew alphabet in order. The first verse begins with Aleph, the second with Beit, the third with Dalet, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, right down until you get through the 22 letters. How about chapter 2? 22. Same reason. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, O, P. Third chapter. Ah, 66. So everything is in three verse segments. The first three verses begin with Aleph. The second three begin with Beit. The third three begin with Dalit, and so on down the line. 
and you'll see the fourth chapter's back to 22. Now, just to throw you a curveball, how many verses in chapter 5? Twenty-two, right? But chapter 5 is not an acrostic. It does have the same number of verses, but it's not an acrostic. Now, we don't know why. Uh, it's just the way it's written. Uh, there may have been some reason in the mind of the composer, if that was Jeremiah or someone else, but in any case, chapter 5 doesn't happen to be an acrostic, but the others all are. So... <clears throat> Uh, now, a little bit about, about writing itself. Writing is known from about 3400 BC. This is the big transition between the prehistoric period and the historic period. When we use the term prehistoric, what we're basically saying is before the invention of writing. Okay? So, roughly 3400 BC is when writing begins in Mesopotamia down in the area of uh, Sumer uh, and Ur and Babylon and the cities like that. Uh, and it's going to begin shortly after that within probably a couple of hundred years in Egypt. Now, in Mesopotamia, they're going to be writing in what we call cuneiform, which is a type of sort of little wedgie-shaped things that are pressed in clay. Uh, in Egypt, they're going to be writing in what we call hieroglyphics, those are two different writing systems, and they develop not very far apart, although the Mesopotamian one is probably the earliest, uh, slightly. Uh, but they do begin writing, and that is, the, that is the transition between the prehistoric period and the historic period. We have been living in the historic period ever since. I would suggest that we are now making a transition that is probably every bit as significant to the world as from prehistoric to historic, and that is to digital technology, which is changing the way everything is done. Um, that's more theory than that I can prove, but I would suggest that we are moving into a third big area, which will be as comprehensive as the invention of writing was uh, 5,000 years ago. So writing is known from about 3400 BC. Most of the early writing was the province of specialists. So even though writing is invented about 3400 BC, most people don't write and most people don't read. This is where, where, what we call the, the rate of literacy, and it's very low. So mostly the people who write are going to be people connected with the king's court. They will be scribes or people keeping records uh, that sort of thing. Uh, and in fact, in the Bible just yesterday, we talked about David's administration, and you may remember that David has a scribe as part of his administration. That's the first scribe that we find in the Bible uh, in, in, an, in an administration this way. Uh, public written documents generally then are not for general reading. They're basically magic monuments when kings inscribe in stone some text, the average person can't come along and read it because the average person can't read. But they do know that something's on those funny little things on that stone that there are somebody back in the king's court that can read. It's kind of like magic. 
The guy in the king's court can actually come and tell you what that stuff means and what it says. He's the scribe. So he becomes an important part of the ancient world. Most people, however, are unable to do that. Israelite society, like most societies in the ancient world, was an oral society. That is probably why the earliest of the prophets do not write down their sermons. We don't have a book of the sermons of Elijah. We don't have a book of the sermons of Elisha. They are prior to widespread literacy. But by around the 8th century BC, uh, we're going to find that some prophets start writing things down. The earliest of those, probably Amos in the 8th century, followed by Hosea, then eventually Isaiah and Micah. But they are writing their sermons down because there is enough widespread literacy that, that access to the writings becomes more important. So a couple of other things. Uh, in about the 12th century BC, the Semitic alphabet was standardized to the 22 letters we know it. We actually have some Hebrew inscriptions that are older than the 12th century BC. But some of them have more than 22 letters in the alphabet. Sometimes they have as many as 28 letters. And eventually the alphabet has to get standardized. So we have the 22 letters that we're used to seeing, whereas earlier they had different kinds of letters, some of which dropped out. What does that mean with respect then to some of the earliest writings of the Bible? It would mean that some of those earliest writings probably had to be standardized as well as the alphabet became standardized. Another thing that's kind of an odd, odd situation is that some of the very earliest texts we have read differently than the ones we end up with. So some of them read actually left to right. Because at this point, they're not using scrolls. They're using clay tablets. So a clay tablet doesn't matter which way you go. You can go left to right. Some of them are written right to left. You have both of those alongside each other in the ancient world. Texts that are written left to right, some written right to left. You also have some that are written vertically. And you also have some that are written uh, what scholars call as the ox plows. The first line is right to left. The second line is left to right. So instead of going this way, this way, this way, this way, it goes this way, this way, this way, and this way. And you read the text in kind of this back and forth thing like, like the ox plows. Okay, so you get some really odd kinds of things happening. But from about the 10th century BC, Hebrew is written in what we call Paleo-Hebrew script, which is ancient Hebrew script. Now, script is not the same thing as an alphabet. Script has to do with the formation of the letters. Have you ever seen any of the original early documents of, uh, say, the American colonies, like the Declaration of Independence or something like that? And if you have tried to read that, you'll notice that some of the letters are formed differently than we do. Uh, what looks like an S might end up looking like an F or something like that. That's because the script changes through time. 
And the same thing happened in Hebrew. There are different scripts, stylus, uh, stylistic differences between letters of the alphabet. So as you move forward in history, you move from paleo script, which is the old script, to a, uh, a, a more modern form, which is sometimes called square script. Uh, and the, the, the letters aren't different, but the way they're formed is, is slightly different. Uh, so that's another feature of that. Um, so widespread literacy occurs in roughly about the 8th century BC, largely due to the Assyrians, because the Assyrians were big on building libraries. And in many of the major towns that they conquered and incorporated into the Assyrian Empire, they built large libraries of texts. These are basically out of cuneiform. These are clay tablets. We've discovered a number of those libraries. Some of them have 20 to 22,000 texts in a single collection uh, in a city like Mari or Ugarit or something like that. <clears throat> All right. Uh, let me stop at this point and see if you have any questions or uh, comments, whatever. Now, this is a whole range of studying the Bible that you generally, generally probably don't do that much of uh, uh, because it's all fairly uh, technical and academic and so on. But uh, it does stand behind the text of the Bible that you read. And I think knowing a little bit about that, you can uh, come to appreciate the fact that you have a translation in the language you can read. Uh, there's a lot of, of backstory to, uh, to the translation that you read in the Bible. I'm sorry, say it again. Well, they wrote in other languages as well. Hebrew is only one of several of what we call West Semitic languages. It will include Hebrew, Moabitish, Edomitish, um, uh, um, uh, well, Ugaritic language, I guess I'll say it that way, um, and, uh, and also Phoenician. Now, Phoenician uh, tends to be the base language. The Phoenicians tend to be the ones that first developed the alphabet in that part of the world. So Hebrew and these other languages are derived basically from Phoenician. That makes it sometimes tricky to decide whether a text is Hebrew or something else because they use a lot of the same words. So if the same word exists in Hebrew and Moabitish and, uh, and another language or two, and you find a text, it, which does it belong to? Scholars fuss about that sort of thing. Uh, and sometimes they get into some pretty heated uh, debates uh, about whether this is actually Hebrew or not with some of these ancient inscriptions. We don't have a lot of ancient inscriptions that are this old, but we do have a number of them. And uh, within the last uh, half a dozen years, there has been some very early scripts that have been discovered in Israel uh, down in uh, basically the Valley of Allah where David and Goliath had their, their big confrontation. And there's a, a team of archaeologists that are working down there, and they've discovered some of these ancient texts. And they are now in a fuss 
with some other scholars who are trying to decide whether these are actually Hebrew texts or not. Maybe they're some other language. So uh, you do get that, that sort of variation uh, among those kind of texts. I saw another hand somewhere. Was, oh, yeah, Cassie. Yeah. Um, that psychology. So learning about like the historical background and just the, the cultural background of the Bible. Um, growing up, I always heard the grand stories of all these characters from the Bible, so it wasn't really even fairy tales for me. But when I actually start looking at the history of the Bible, the time of the Bible, it makes it real. Yeah. It makes it more applicable. Yeah, I, th I think that's true. I, I find the same thing true. Yeah. Yeah. All right, um, now, I want you to look in your Bible in the book of Proverbs at Proverbs 25. I need to grab one myself. Forgot to put my... Oh, I'm sorry, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they have that. They have a very nice website for that. Yeah, they do. Yeah, this is from the Shrine of the Book in Jerusalem, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in fact, it has that big Isaiah scroll on display kind of in a big thing where it's all unrolled. Uh, yeah. people from all the world. Oh, yeah. Yeah, if you're, uh, I mean, if you're, uh, I don't know, uh, a French speaker, you can do the same kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's cool. Okay, uh, Proverbs 25, and I want you to notice something here. If you look at the heading before the, before the chapter, what does it say? These are the Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, copied. Everybody see that? So what, is that, what does that mean? Well, that means that Solomon has produced a number of proverbs, and they have collected them together and put them in written form, which is part of the book of Proverbs. And it is not an accident that Hezekiah lives in the 8th century B.C., when literacy is expanding rapidly in the ancient Near East. So this kind of collection is part of the growth of literacy. So there's an explosion of text in the archaeological record from about the 8th century BC and later. Um, so this collection of Proverbs, this is a pattern, probably repeated for the Psalms. There's a kind of an implication of that in Second Chronicles. Uh, and one of the things that you have noticed already when you were reading First and Second Kings is that frequently you come across this phrase, this is recorded in the archives of the kings of Israel or the archives of the kings of Judah. Now, these royal archives were archives that were almost certainly produced by scribes, kind of like the royal library of Israel or the royal library of Judah. How did those texts come together? 
because the Israelites are a northern kingdom, often at war with Judah, which is the southern kingdom. They don't get along really well, and it's not likely that they issue library cards so they can <laughs> draw from each other's collections. So how do, how do the, the archives of the north and the archives of the south come together? Can you offer a guess on that one? Oh, sorry. <laughs> See, you would love to have me for a professor because I put the answers on the board when you're taking the test, you know. <laughs> okay, that was a dead question. Uh, <clears throat> but what happens in the north is that when the Assyrians begin to deport people, massive deportations, people who escape, often are going to escape by going south into Judah. And they're going to end up in Jerusalem. In fact, this is exactly what is happening today with Ukrainians. They're fleeing cities, and they're ending up in other cities, and probably they're bringing with them whatever they can collect together and bring. That is probably how these texts from the north got to the south, is that people from the north fled southward, brought their texts with them, and so eventually down in Jerusalem you have both northern text and southern text, and you have basically the archives of the kings of Israel and the archives of the kings of Judah, which can be brought together in what we call first and second kings, okay, or first and second chronicles. Um, so, uh, writing uh, begins to appear on ostracaw. Now, ostracaw are pieces of broken pottery. In the ancient world, they did not have yellow post-it notes, which we have come to assume is a constituent part of society. In fact, about half of my brains are on yellow postal notes because if I don't do that, I won't remember it. Uh, so I've got postal notes on my postal notes uh, <laughs> to keep my life organized, okay? So they're writing on pieces of broken pottery, which is an excellent surface because it's smooth, and pottery has the advantage that it just is almost indestructible. You can break it into pieces, but the pieces just last. They don't get wet and erode and fall apart like paper, uh, bugs doesn't eat it, you know, don't eat pottery shards. Uh, they don't, are not subject to the same kind of problems of mildew and things that would destroy a leather kind of text. So in archaeological digs, we find tens of thousands of pieces of pottery. I mean, that is the most prolific artifact that we find in all ancient uh, excavations is pieces of pottery. I mean, tons and tons of it, just tons of it. Um, uh, I was with Dr. Rami Arab from the University of Haifa at one of the digs in Galilee, and they had a pile of potsherds that was half as big as this room. I mean, just hundreds and hundreds of potsherds. Now, most of those are not worth much. You can tell a little bit about the style of the pot, maybe by the way the lip is or things like that. But once in a while, you uncover what is called an ostracon. 
Now, this is a vocabulary word that you should learn. An ostracon is a piece of broken pottery with writing on it, usually in a carbon-based ink. And an ostracon is very valuable because writing tells you things that you can't just figure out by looking at a piece of broken pottery. So occasionally we find an ostracon, and we find them often in tombs or just sometimes at the edge of the town. In fact, in Israel, if a clay pot became unclean, it had to be destroyed. They couldn't clean it and reuse it. The only kind of vessels they could clean and reuse were stone. But pottery, not so. So virtually every village had what is sometimes called a potter's field. It's a dump, basically. It's where they put their garbage and pieces of broken pottery. So there's bunches of them down there. Jerusalem had one down in uh, the south of the city of David. There is a little valley called the Valley of Hinnom, and that was the potsherd dump. And so it's kind of an irony that that's where Judas commits suicide, and he becomes kind of a broken pot himself in, in, a, in a sort of a metaphorical way. Uh, but he dies down there uh, by suicide. <clears throat> Uh, also, we begin to find graffiti. Uh, that's interesting, too, because graffiti is uh, such a, a widespread part of modern society that we almost don't see any building that doesn't have a little bit on it somewhere. Uh, and it's on railroad cars, and I mean, you know, graffiti's everywhere, which is interesting because when I was your age, there was hardly any graffiti anywhere. Uh, what really made graffiti possible in the way that it's done today is the spray can. With the invention of a spray bomb, graffiti has all kinds of a horizon that they never had before. Uh, so now there's graffiti everywhere, uh, and uh, probably that's not going to quit, I'm going to assume. <laughs> um, finally, official communications begin to be issued by royal letter to the towns. In the in the administration of Hezekiah, you find this in this passage in 2 Chronicles, this will be the first time that Hezekiah is going to communicate to the outlying towns of Judah by letter. Prior to that, if a king wanted to communicate with the towns, he would send a messenger who would do this orally. And it would be uh, what in the old English uh, 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 culture would be called a town crier. In other words, he would come to a village and he would, everybody get together and he would just in a loud voice tell you what the king said. Now the king is going to be issuing things in writing. Once you put it in writing, you have less opportunity for it to go astray because it's on a permanent kind of text of some sort. In fact, that's what would eventually happen in the English language. Have you ever heard the expression, the king's English? If you go back in English history, that's the English that is used at the court that eventually becomes the standard for all of England. So you speak the king's English or you write in the king's English. Uh, obviously, this is much older than England, but it's in principle kind of the same sort of thing. 
So Hezekiah is, is, is communicating with the towns of Judah by royal letter. And there are, as I mentioned, these libraries built by the Assyrians and all the provinces. Uh, you'll also remember that in 2 Kings, uh, have you been reading 2 Kings yet or is that still upcoming? You're, uh, this week, okay. Uh, when, you, when you read it, you're going to discover that there is a very important Torah scroll that is discovered in the temple that causes a lot of turbulence. Uh, it's going to be discovered in the period of Josiah's kingship. And this Torah scroll, which was probably what we call the book of Deuteronomy, is going to create a, a good deal of stirring on the part of the king, on the part of uh, people who are in charge, and they're going to realize, boy, if this Torah scroll is true, we're in trouble if we don't get our act together. Uh, Huldah the prophetess is going to be the one who's reading it. Uh, she is obviously literate because she can read this text. And she reads it and she says, yep, that's exactly what's going to happen, just what this text says. Uh, so that was a real, a real important uh, a moment in Judah's history. So literacy development accompanies the development of Hebrew wisdom literature. This is where I get to say I said all of that to say this, that this widespread literacy and this development of all the things that we've been talking about is going to feed into the development of wisdom literature. And some of the wisdom literature of the Bible is very, very old, especially parts of the book of Job. Some of the book of Job is probably the oldest kind of Hebrew that we find in the Bible. Here's some of the kind of text we're talking about. This is a text that describes how Hezekiah built a tunnel from the Gihon Spring to Siloam uh, under the city of David. Um, this text was discovered in the tunnel itself. It is written in ancient Hebrew. Uh, when Palestine was under the control of the Ottoman Turk Empire, so this is going to get you back into the 1800s, they discovered it and they carved it out of the wall and took it to their museum in Istanbul. Uh, and it's still there today. So if you want to see this text, you can see it. It's about something about this size. And it is in the museum in Istanbul. Uh, so like most museums, most of the things in their museums are basically stolen from somewhere. <laughs> uh, and mostly they don't want to give it back. Uh, so. Uh, um, people are always fussing about the British Museum and the Louvre and why don't they give all this stuff back? And well, you can fuss about the Museum in Istanbul too because they don't want to give it back either. Uh, anyway, it's an ancient text. Uh, here's some other kinds of texts that appear in the time of Hezekiah. These are the fragments of jar handles. So you have a clay jar and you have handles on the side, but the handles are often embossed with this figure, which is basically a winged sun disk. This is supposed to be the disk of the sun, and these are the rays, if you want to call it that, or the wings of the sun. But what is really important is that not only do you have that symbol, you have little writing that is part of the embossment on these handles. And that little writing says, this belongs to the king or belonging to the king. And we have discovered many of those, hundreds of them, 
with this little phrase belonging to the king starting in about the 8th century when literacy is widening out in the ancient world. Uh, this is called the Lachish letter. I'm going to say more about this when we're doing 2 Kings because it directly relates to the uh, invasion of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, but these are ostraka. Ostraka is the plural of ostrakan, okay? And you can see that the writing is, even though you can't read it in ancient Hebrew, it's pretty clear. Uh, it's quite readable. Uh, and it's going to say some really uh, interesting things. One of the things it says is that uh, it's going to mention by name the cities of Ozka and Lachish, which are exactly the two cities that Jeremiah mentions as the only two cities that are left to protect Jerusalem, which is an amazing intersection of an ancient artifact and a, a historical event. Okay, now let me stop at this point. And uh, it's not time for break yet, but we're... We're inching toward it. Uh, how are we doing so far? Okay. Are you ready for some metaphorical language? The way that Hebrew uses figurative language. Or are you totally exhausted by this point? You okay, Myron? Yeah, I'm doing okay. Sounds a little wobbly, though. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, you guys need, do, you guys need a break? do you need a break now? Are you good for 15 more minutes? Okay. All right. Here we go. <clears throat> Metaphorical language. Language that focuses on analogies or comparisons between things. We have a lot of analogies in American English, and there are analogies in most any language in the world. They're metaphorical. These are some familiar ones that probably you've heard of before, to bend over backwards. If we say that in English, are we actually bending over backwards? No. Uh, that's just a, an idiom. Uh, it's a comparison between doing something very difficult bending over backwards and comparing it with some other task that we say we're bending over backwards to do it. Uh, so it's very difficult. Or to talk turkey or to have a screw loose. Uh, we use all kinds of those sorts of things in English. They have a bunch of interesting ones in French. Anybody a French speaker? Okay, well, you may recognize some of this. Uh, I can't smell him. Well, in French, that basically means he's annoying me. It doesn't really have anything to do with your nose, but it's an idiom. Or he's cow dung. Um, that's your favorite? Always my favorite. Always my favorite. <laughs> okay. That means he's not very sophisticated. Okay. Not literally cow dung, of course. Um, or he has swollen ankles, which is what we mean in English when we say someone has a swollen head. Uh, this has nothing to do with a swollen hairdo. It just has to do with a swollen head. <laughs> Tori's glaring at me, which she has every right to do. <laughs> I'm sorry. I apologize. Kind of. 
<laughs> I actually love it. All right, so you have stuff like that in Hebrew. Uh, for instance, the word shepherd, which is a metaphor for leadership, because the kings in the ancient world are often called shepherds because they, in a sense, are herding a flock of sheep, which is the citizens of the country. Um, here's one from Job. How much less a man who's but a maggot, a son of man who's only a worm? Uh, that's a comparison with uh, humans as opposed to God. We are the lowest of creatures. Uh, and so it's a, it's a kind of comparison. Or... Uh, the dead are in deep anguish, those beneath the waters. So drowning is a common idiom for dying. Uh, the waters in the Psalms are say, the water swept over my head. That's a way of uh, taking the idea of drowning as, a, as the idea that you're just ready to, to give up. Anybody ever come close to drowning? Uh, if, you, if you have, you know that, boy, there's a few seconds there when you think, I may not be going to get out of this. Um, and that's sort of this, this, uh, this metaphor for death. Uh, there's all kinds of other figures of speech. There's simile, uh, where things are like something else. Uh, that's the way we would talk about it in English anyway. Like a madman shooting deadly arrows is a man who deceives his neighbor and says, I was only joking. I think that's a very uh, relevant of a piece of poetry for the modern workers who always say, oh, I'm just kidding. Oh, yeah? Were you really just kidding? <laughs> kind of leaves you wondering anyway. Like a lily among thorns is my darling among the maidens. What a wonderful statement. Wouldn't you like to have somebody say that about you? Like a lily among thorns is my darling among the maidens. As a cloud vanishes and is gone, so he who goes down to shale does not return. These are all simile kinds of metaphors. As a dream comes when there are many cares, so the speech of a fool when there are many words. Um, some similes are extended, like the fool who, who goes after a uh, prostitute is like an ox to the slaughter, like a deer, like a bird that's caught in a a uh, trap, that sort of thing, uh, or wine that bites like a snake and poisons like a viper. So these are similes that it kind of gets stretched out a bit. Uh, you have personification where living expressions are giving to, given to things that are not human objects. So for instance, wisdom calls aloud in the streets. Well, wisdom isn't a person, but it's depicted as though it were a person and calls out in the streets. Uh, the leech has two daughters. Give, give, they cry. Um, that's a pretty vivid kind of metaphor. Um, you have uh, irony and sarcasm. How many of you grew up with brothers and sisters in which you developed the fine art of sarcasm? Most of you. <laughs> uh, it, it, there is an art to sarcasm. And um, you can learn to be quite proficient at it if you have older sisters or older brothers or something like that. Uh, I had two older sisters. So <clears throat> I worked on this very hard when I was a kid. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I like some of the sarcasm in the book of Job, where he says to his friends, 
Doubtless you are the people and wisdom will die with you. That is just dripping with sarcasm. Does he mean that that is true for them? No, he means you guys are as stupid as toads. Uh, <clears throat> that's what he really means. Uh, later, he says, you would even cast lots for the fatherless. In other words, you are so hard-hearted. You are so like flint that you have not a breath of compassion. And then there are things like metonymy and synecdoche. Those are a little more sophisticated kinds of figures of speech. Uh, Job says, I've made a covenant with my eyes. But the eyes just basically means him. Okay, it's using the part to represent the whole. Uh, here's another one. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Well, that just means uh, uh, he's in control uh, by God. Um, Apostrophe, this is where you address something to a person that isn't actually there, uh, such as this question from the song. Who is this? Coming up from the desert like a column of smoke. Well, who's the speaker talking to? Well, nobody. There's nobody there. But he is, he's using this line as an apostrophe, as though someone were there. Uh, we are familiar with those kinds of sayings from various text. Uh, most of you are familiar with this line. Um, to be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing in them, blah, 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 blah. That's an apostrophe. Uh, who's he talking to? Well, nobody. And yet the reader is reading that as though somebody were there. Um, so you have uh, the same kind of things in the song. Oh, daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, that kind of thing. Hyperbole. Hyperbole is intended exaggeration. Not trying to deceive somebody, but trying to emphasize something. So if I tell my kids, if you do that again, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> no, I, no, I'm not. I would never do that. But I really want to make a point that this is serious. Okay, don't do that again, you know. Um, uh, here you have a hyperbole in the book of Job. He heaps up silver like dust. Well, probably nobody has that much silver. Uh, all my misery would surely outweigh the sands of the seas. Well, okay, but that's, a, that's, a, that's an exaggeration to say I'm, I really feel bad. <laughs> really bad, okay? Uh, there's also something called marismus, uh, which is uh, something total is kind of expressed in short form like young men and old men, which means everybody, actually, or the soles of the feet to the top of the head. We use that one even in English. Well, that just means everywhere, uh, not just those two parts, but everywhere. Um, Handiadus. Uh, uh, you can look at that one, withdraw your hand, stop frightening me, where you're joining things into kind of a single complex of ideas, uh, rhetorical questions. Uh, yeah, we're pretty familiar with rhetorical questions. They're questions you're asking, and the answer ought to be obvious, okay, with a rhetorical question. So uh, you find that various places in the Bible, both the New and the Old Testament, um, uh, 
you have uh, this one. Is there any wickedness on my lips, Job says? Uh, what does he intend the answer to be? No, there's not, even though his friends are accusing him. Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Well, the obvious answer is no. If he puts fire in his lap, he is going to get burned. So there's a variety of other uh, poetic devices. I think I'm going to uh, just sort of uh, pass through these very quickly and not really talk about them. You're going to get uh, a copy of this PowerPoint, by the way, so you can look at those if you want. Um, and that brings us to the end of uh, some language stuff before we actually begin to look at the song after the break. So it's 426, and this is a good place to stop. And I think some of you at this point need to stop. Okay. Well, maybe I should say you need me to stop, uh, and I'm stopping.